everybody. I'm Jamin. You're listening to the Happy Market Research Podcast. My guest today is Rick Kelly, Chief Product Officer at FuelCycle. Founded in 2005, FuelCycle was started as a community management platform and has evolved into one of today's leading experience management platforms. Prior to joining FuelCycle, Rick started his career as a communications intern for the U.S. Senator Mick Crapo and held a senior leadership role at SSI, or Survey Sampling International. Rick, thanks very much for joining me on the Happy Market Research Podcast today. Thanks so much for having me, Jamin. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Today, almost everyone has taken surveys, but did you know that SurveyMonkey offers complete solutions for professional market researchers? In addition to flexible surveys, their global audience panel, and research services, SurveyMonkey just launched a fast and easy way to collect market research feedback with seven new expert solutions for concept and creative testing. With built-in customizable methodology, AI-powered insights, and industry benchmarking, you can get feedback on your idea from your target market in a presentation-ready format. Oh, and by the way, in as little as an hour. For more information on SurveyMonkey's market research solutions, please visit surveymonkey.com slash market research. That's surveymonkey.com slash market research. It's nice to have one of the OGs in Consumer Insights on the show. And it's also nice to have somebody who's from the Central Valley of California on the show. Well, I'm not so sure about the first appellation as an OG of Consumer Insights, <laughs> but uh, I, I, am most, I am most definitely from, uh, from farm country in, in California. Yeah, that's right. So tell us a little bit about your parents and how they informed what you're doing today. Really fantastic question. So I, um, I'm the oldest of 11 children. So that means that my youngest sister actually just finished graduating high school. And I think that informs a lot of like who I am and the fact that I grew up on a, on a farm in Central California. I, my family actually felt like a farmed um, Puyu persimmons. And I did a lot of like odd work on cattle farms and tractors and picking fruit and working out in a farm. And obviously uh, I was the eldest brother of these other 11 kids, which was uh, you know kind of crazy and fun and interesting and really interesting experience overall. My mom was a teacher by trade and she's gone back to teaching, but she took time off to be a full-time homemaker. And when I say homemaker, I mean that she was literally doing everything. She was running a lot of like the orchard operations and, you know, family 13, which is a pretty intense process. And then uh, my dad is an agronomist who started his own business or, you know, co-founded his own business when I was about seven or eight years old. And so he's working on, you know, agricultural technology and kind of continues in that field to this day. So it's kind of quick background on my family and my parents and who they are. So how did that upbringing on a farm of a very large family, I mean, most CEOs will not manage companies as big as your family. How did that impact who you are today? Yeah, I think for the most part, there's a lot of like hard work that goes into managing like a farm and having a large family and kind of being the eldest. And, and so essentially a lot got delegated to me just by virtue of me being the eldest child. And so that mean, meant like my, my parents placed an extreme emphasis on responsibility and hard work. And essentially it was just kind of an expectation that, you know, I'm up, you know, early in the morning on a Saturday getting work done, you know, whether it's a moving irrigation pipeline around or it's weeding or it's going off to somebody else's farm or somebody else's property to do a bunch of work. 
there's like just a lot of emphasis placed on hard work and responsibility and just getting stuff done. And so one of the things that I found in my life is there's not like a super high tolerance for people who don't want to do things. It's more like we do it because we're supposed to do it or we need to do it. And so not a ton of like, uh, you know, no real point in complaining about something. We might as well just get to it because task isn't going to get done on its own. As my late grandfather used to say, the cows are not going to milk themselves. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's true. They can't get milked by other cows, though. But uh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> so was it an odd experience as you got older and moved outside of the, you know, your, your sphere of influence, um, seeing how other people perceived work? I, I didn't know anything other than that. And so, yeah, like, I mean, it was different because, you know, I, when I went to college and everything, and I left the Central Valley, it was just a different world kind of seeing how other kids grew up. You know, in many cases, uh, there weren't lazy summers. And, and now <laughs> I would say almost, I would say almost that uh, I probably have a little more relaxation time than I did as a kid, although my parents may dispute that. But, you know, <laughs> it, it, and my kids certainly have more relaxation time than, than I do, you know, I, I did. So it is different, but also uh, it's not a normal experience that I had. You know, most people don't grow up on a farm and they don't grow up like in the Central Valley doing a bunch of, you know, farm things. And so, you know, over the past like time since I left the Valley, I think I've come to appreciate a lot of different, different perspectives and seen a lot of different lifestyles. And so, you know, there's no real like judgment from that. It's you know, just kind of circumstances that I was placed in. So as you kind of reflect on those early days whether it was the internship for the senator or what have you, as you started entering the workforce, what was one of your biggest surprises? Ooh, that's a very good question. You know, I think that one of the things I found is that expectations were like relatively low for most people, right? I don't mean that pejoratively. I just mean that in many cases, like when people are hiring for a role, they hire for a role with somebody with expectations that somebody will do, you know, a well-defined job there's opportunities, opportunities abound to excel and to step outside and, you know, do something more than what you were required to do. So definitely do what you're required to do, but also, you know, also take opportunities to excel and to, to do more than you ask and, and, you know, surprise people. And I think that's a, that mentality has kind of served me well over the past, uh, you know, over my career so far. It is sort of like an, what I hear you saying is an ownership mentality, even if you don't technically own the asset that you're responsible for. Yeah, exactly. So ownership mentality, it's like one of my favorite kind of frameworks is, is thinking about, you know, everybody should act like an owner because, you know, like there's, if you're going to do something, you might as well do the best you can on it. Right. And that's something I actually firmly believe. And my wife gets super annoyed with me because I actually, there's a game that I know I'm going to be horrible at. <laughs> I don't love to play that game because I know it's not going to be something I excel at, but if it's something I can excel at or there's an opportunity to excel, I definitely want to do that. And I definitely want to, you know, kind of give it my all. So when you fast forward your career, you worked at First Opinion. They're located in India. You relocated to India, their HQ. What were some of the biggest challenges around adapting to a new company and a new culture? Yeah. So if I can describe uh, First Opinion a little bit for you, I was actually a little bit outside of, of market research, but it was like my first like role in the technology space. And so what it was, it was a an application or an app that allows you to like text a doctor and get a first opinion before actually going in for a doctor's visit. And the, the target market was really around, you know, mothers 
of you know young children who wanted to check and see if something was okay before they spent a bunch of time and effort going into the doctor. But actually, after I left SSI, I went and taught college for a year. And then I was working really, really hard to get into technology. And so I ended up you know, connecting with a former roommate who had founded a company and then uh, decided to start First Opinion. And he pitched me this whole idea of building this other company and that how about I move to India and work for First Opinion in India, developing supply chains for and partnerships for doctors to message First Opinion app users. And so I actually uh, you know, took my wife and my three-month-old son, and we moved to India uh, just outside of New Delhi. So essentially, we were alone by ourselves without an office. We worked from home. Uh, my wife also worked for the, the company as a community manager. And then we essentially just had to kind of set up the infrastructure ourselves. There was no big like expat package or you know, nobody there to greet us when we landed. You know, we had to do everything on our own and with a three-month-old. And that was a, a pretty crazy experience. But uh, I lived internationally before. Um, I spent two years living in Ireland, in uh, like Northern Ireland in the early 2000s. And so being exposed to like international life and everything wasn't so different. And just trying to be like somewhat autonomous wasn't terribly challenging, but it was a complete culture shock and infrastructure shock and everything. And you can imagine with a three-month-old that it ended up you know, it was it was challenging to to work and to balance a family, and you know, try and find a place to live and, and all those things at the same time. Yeah, because the internet wasn't I and mean, there wasn't an Airbnb for you in those days. No, there there was not. Airbnb <laughs> was still brand still brand new. We essentially I booked the hotel, so we showed up at a hotel for a week and said we had to find a place to live uh, within that week, and so we found a place to live and moved into an apartment. But again, like, you know, most expats we knew had big expat packages where they had, you know, a driver and people doing a lot for them. And for us, it was really just about finding our own way, which is a good adventure, you know, not without its share, you know, fair share of challenges, not least of which was the rest of the company the other, you know, our developers and the founder and everything were in San Francisco. We were exactly 12 hours apart at the time. And so there's a, you know, a lot of challenges around like communication and coordination and those types of things as well. So the topic today, actually, before we move into the topic, I, I want to dive in on this other point. How did you actually manage expectations with the team in San Francisco or wherever they were based um, in the States and while you are 12 hours different? I mean, because that's a huge barrier on every front, especially in context of like non, like, you know, Slack adoption wasn't high. <laughs> you know, there, there wasn't the modern toolkit for remote work. Yeah, I mean, uh, so the, the modern toolkit is definitely useful, but we did a lot of messaging. So if you can imagine, I was working at a you know San Francisco-based startup. We were pretty like early adopters of, of technology. So at the same, you know, at that time, I think we were using WhatsApp or or MessageMe to text pretty much constantly. And I usually started my day a little bit later, and then I would do like a, a check-in call with the rest of the team around 10 p.m. at night, like my time. And so essentially, you know, I, I kind of sign off for the day around midnight, try and unwind for 45 minutes, then go to bed. And then, uh, you know, kind of check back in with the team when I woke up in the morning. And so essentially, we, we had a pretty high cadence of communication. Um, it definitely was a challenge. You know, Zoom didn't exist. Some of the video calling infrastructure and everything wasn't like it was today. But we did make it work just by using the tools we had to pretty much constantly communicate. 
Did you have a clear set of objectives when you relocated? In other words, did you have a picture of what success looked like? No, it was, uh, I mean, so it's early stage startup. And obviously, you know, the long-term view is that we exit for a billion dollars and we're all like rich and successful and everything like that. But the short-term view, you know, was really like, hey, this is, uh, we need to form partnerships and we need to work with doctors that are in India. It was really like a labor arbitrage move. And so whatever it takes to get that done, go do that. And uh, I mean, yeah, so personally, I found that super useful. Like if I have like an undefined, like, hey, go figure this out. That's something I love to do is take something that's exceptionally ambiguous and just uh, jump into it. Um, Mm -hmm. A lot more fun, a lot more fun to me. All right. So as you know, this is this podcast is part of the series on how to successfully manage a your career in consumer insights. So what are three tips to managing a successful career? I mean, that's a really fantastic question. And I wish that I was the paragon of career excellence, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> which I don't necessarily think I am. But, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, there's, there's a handful of things I think have been true for me and uh, have been helpful for me in my career is number one, I, I find like an exceptional like curiosity around like business models, the way things work and the way like my organization works and, you know, what we're trying to accomplish. Like, so just being very, very curious about understanding uh, my industry, about understanding my company, about understanding like what we're trying to accomplish and then applying myself as much as possible to that. So that's one thing I would say, like it, kind of an intense curiosity. The second thing I would say is that, you know, I've, I've learned over the years that, you know, high communication cadence and clear communication is really, really important. And so I've worked at companies that are, you know, a couple thousand people in size and I've worked in companies that are five people and now fuel cycle is roughly around, you know, like a hundred people, give or take a few. And no matter where I go, having clear, consistent communication has been really, really important to driving alignment to, you know, helping people understand what you're trying to do. And also, uh, you know, it also encourages the same behavior in others. And maybe finally, the third thing I would say is, you know, at some point, I don't know that, you know, like, honestly, I think just hustling and and working hard, there's probably no substitute for it. It's kind of like this, uh, kind of the the Babe Ruth approach, where, uh, you know, I don't know all the details, but uh, essentially, like, you take a lot of swings, a lot of them are going to be misses, but some of them, you're going to hit it out of the park. And so I would say that I, I try to take more swings and push hard on some things. You know, I would say I, I definitely am not a nine to five type person. You know, like the, I, I do take a lot of meetings. I do a lot of things that end up going nowhere, which is okay. Because in many cases, there's a, an element of serendipity to that, where we find an opportunity or we find something new that allows us to, to grow as a business or allows me to grow as an individual that I wouldn't have had otherwise. So to kind of summarize, and I hadn't really thought about this much beforehand, it's, you know, one, I think it's like that really intense curiosity. Two is, you know, clear and consistent communication. And uh, number three is that there's just no substitute for hard work and, you know, taking a lot of swings. And if you look at your career, where you are right now, it's a very envious position. And I, I realize that you're from the Central Valley, so you probably just start cringing on the inside as soon as I say that. But like, you know, chief product officer at a company that is growing at the rate the fuel cycle is, especially in this economic climate, is is impressive. And if you look back on your career, I mean, I can kind of see how you got to where you are. Obviously, communications, internal and comms, that makes a lot of sense. The entrepreneurship product, and then obviously the 
fundamental understanding of research operations from SSI and then a sales bent. And But the thing that really stands out to me about you and others as well that have been on the show is it is less about the career management, like this is the next job I'm going to get, and more about the core values or the a way that you approach the work that you're doing right now that winds up stepping up or leveling up your career. Yeah. And you're right. I did cringe a little bit because I think fuel cycle is in a wonderful place. And sometimes I look at like what we've managed to build and it feels kind of unreal. And it's almost like an out-of-body experience to kind of look back and you know see our name on an award list or a growth list or something like that. Because, you know, it's a bunch of humans that have built it together, which is really cool. But, uh, you know, you're right when it comes to career management. I don't think I have like an overarching career plan, like, you know, five years from now, you know, what's, what am I doing? Three years from now, what am I doing? You know, it's really been about moving forward as fast and as hard as I can with something that I'm really interested in and, you know, having like the curiosity and natural affinity for what I'm doing. And if if I have those things, then essentially all is good. You know, of course, I want to be successful and all those things, but there's not been like a master plan. Uh, You see, I went from like political science and top political science, then went and did an MBA at UNC Chapel Hill and all those things as well. And so it's not like a clear connect the dots path. So I'm glad you can see one because to most people, it hasn't been very clear. And to be honest, like if you look through my LinkedIn history, you wouldn't see that there's a ton of pain and heartache around like, you know, some of these career transitions. So, you know, being like perfectly open and candid is there was a point when I had to move back from India when my son was diagnosed with a rare bleeding disorder, you know, like essentially I had to pack up and leave and leave like the startup I was working for in a lurch because I couldn't be in India because my son had a one in you know, one in one million condition that needed to be in the U.S. for treatment or for, you know, like a role that I don't talk a lot about publicly, where essentially like I joined the company and they fired me a few weeks later. And I'm not putting them on my LinkedIn profile because it was just a few weeks. And I honestly think they had no business hiring me, but that happened. And the first email that I sent after I got that phone call, before I even went downstairs to talk to my wife and say, hey, you know, by the way, I just got fired was the first email I sent was to a former colleague that I'd worked with that was then working at FuelCycle. And within a couple months, I was moving from Utah to New York, where I started a fuel cycle, right? And then essentially moving from New York to LA to work in our headquarters and work closer to our you know, product and engineering teams. And so there's a, you know, there's a lot of great things that have happened, but there's also, there's been a lot of bumps and bruises and everything. And I think my parents-in-law probably wondered if I could possibly, you know, stay in one spot for more than two years before I landed here, right? And so it's not perfectly clear-cut, and it's been more about like direction and amplitude and just kind of nonstop push to try and, you know, make something of myself that I think helped me get where I am today. There's a lot of people right now that are unemployed or facing or on furlough or facing unemployment in our space. When you're in this kinds of a situation, and I've been there too, you know, you can become your own worst enemy, especially in context of this shelter in place, because you don't have necessarily the access to the distractions. Like, how were you able to keep yourself positive through those difficult times? Ooh, that's a, that's a really great question. And first of all, I, you know, my heart like really goes out to people who are in a, you know, difficult position, you know, professionally, financially, uh, socially today, because, you know, I've been there uh, as well. And it sounds like you may have as, as well too. And it's a painful spot to be in. And what I would say is like, you know, for me, what I found was helpful is that I, I think I treated every day as if I like was working. So essentially I sat down 
I was looking for roles. I was, you know, developing presentations. I sent unsolicited like presentations or strategy documents to companies that I wanted to work for. And, you know, I put in phone calls and reached out to my network and essentially did things that, so I put in a lot of work to land on my feet. And I think a lot of that came to nothing, but it helped keep my head straight and helped me kind of push in the right direction, if that makes sense. Like essentially, uh, it kept me engaged in something. Uh, it kept me active in my field and uh, ended up being helpful for me in the long run, I think. There is something about that where you just continue to sharpen your axe, right? Even when you're in the in-between space, uh, whether it's making PowerPoint presentations or thinking strategically about business problems and actually documenting it as if it was a paid gig, you know, that kind of, those sorts of activities that we normally get paid for, the more that we exercise those muscles and the more, it's funny because you can become better at the skills in those situations because it's happening in a vacuum as opposed to, you know, the million meetings that are normally inundating your, your life. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, for a lot of insights professionals, one of the questions that, or the frameworks I like to think through is if I needed to make a thousand dollars on the internet in the next week, what would I do? You know, how can I make a thousand dollars in the next week? Because if you can make a thousand dollars, you can probably make $3,000. If you can make $3,000, you can probably make $10,000. And so essentially thinking out, okay, so I don't have to do everything today, but I do need to start with something small. And if I can do that, then I can do the next thing. And rather than try and uh, win everything all at once, think incrementally. And that allows you to kind of develop yourself and your own kind of yourself as a product, which I think, you know, is a pretty useful framework in general. Speaking of products, this is a nice segue. FuelCycle has gone through a material evolution you know, starting predominantly as a community management platform and now evolving to a customer experience platform. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about your toolkit and how companies are using it. Yeah, it's a really interesting like story of evolution. And for us, you know, research communities remain like, you know, are still like very, very important to fuel cycle and to our partners and to our customers. And so we put a lot of effort into continuous development there. And trying to provide uh, you know value for the long term, but you're right that essentially what we have is what we would call like a market research cloud. Our goal is to be able to do any type of research or capture any type of insight through the fuel cycle platform, and that comes from our own tools, from our network of partner and product integrations, and from like the solutions that we're building ourselves. So, you know, hypothetically, somebody could be doing a focus group or an in-depth interview around UX research with their fuel cycle platform. In the morning, in the afternoon, they can deploy, you know, an adaptive choice conjoint study. So essentially, we're trying to deliver like the flexibility for enterprises to do, you know, whatever it is that they need to do uh, with their core audiences. And they can be sampling from uh, a community. They can be sampling from a panel. Um, they can be sampling from a customer list. And so essentially, giving them the tools to do just about anything is where really where we find uh, ourselves successful. And I think that, you know, when we do interviews with our customers to, to learn about why they selected fuel cycle, it is that flexibility and the optionality that they have to do just about any type of research that makes us, uh, you know, a relatively valuable solution. And, um, you know, some things that we do is like we, we do try to, you know, take a lot of feedback and, and understand our customers as well. So we measure MPS very religiously uh, inside our platform. Uh, we do a lot of customer interviews and share prototypes and get feedback and do customer surveys and things like that right now. And so it's it's important for us to walk the talk 
and to also apply like what we see as like we want to be our own ideal customer as well. The AC, the adaptive conjoints, interesting, and then the qualitative side of it, or I call it qualitative, but it's really UX is interesting. Their, their market research and user experience have largely been separate domains. Do you see those consolidating? Uh, yeah, I, I think so. And there's a there's a couple of structural reasons that I think it makes sense. Is that in many cases, like user experience, and well, first of all, like every company is a digital company nowadays, right? So whether you're a retailer. A CPG company or whatnot, you're becoming a digital company, which means that user acquisition and user onboarding and user retention is really the same thing as customer acquisition and customer retention. And so essentially, uh, there's two fields that use a common set of tools. They use a common set of methodologies and frameworks, but they use different nomenclature for them. And so in, in some cases, I think that the UX and market research fields, they have a lot of common similarities. And it makes sense that if you want to have best-in-class UX tools, you might use a solution that has been available in the market research space for a long time and vice versa. Huh. Super interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm seeing it too. And I, I think as we move into the back half of this year, 2020, SurveyMonkey just released a prospectus on budgets, market research budgets, and it's clear that there's going to be tightening. So especially going into 2021. So if that's the case, it feels to me like it's a really good opportunity for fuel cycle as the whole product from a consolidation perspective, especially from the lens of procurement and even better given that the tool works in context of the researchers. Um, well, first of all, SurveyMonkey, I read that report. It's really fantastic. And uh, they're, they're a good partner of ours as well. You know, I think when it comes to fuel cycle, uh, certainly our, our hypothesis is that, you know, kind of customer adoption and the overall value that you get out of a fuel cycle relationship is really positive. At the same time, we're also, you know, we've introduced like new products and new solutions to the market that help us support smaller customers and bigger, you know, enterprise customers that, that, that we support today. So you guys have an event coming up in September. It's the FC Connect. It's a digital insight summit featuring one of my favorite people from Shark Tank, Barbara Corcoran. There's also quite a few researchers that are going to be presenting. I think it's ESPN, City National Bank, Denny's, and some others. As you guys are putting this together, actually, I should back up because this is a fully digital experience. Have you guys ever done anything like this before? So we have never done anything at this scale that we're doing. So this is very unique and, and very exciting. And like you, I'm, I'm super excited to see uh, Barbara Corcoran from Shark Tank uh, speak with us. So the attendees, right? The people like me that are going to be in the audience, what is the big takeaway? Like, what do you hope, what does success look like? Yeah. So, I mean, we, we started off this year with a different plan for events, you know, in the back half of this year, we were planning to do like in city, like customer events, maybe do like one on the West coast, one on the East coast and somewhere in the Midwest. And so when it was obvious that that wasn't going to happen, we decided let's put together this digital event and we were thinking about what to name it. And really we thought about, you know, our heritage in research communities and like the kind of the need for connection these days where, you know, we're all kind of sheltering in place and everything. So we said, let's call it FC connect. And really, a couple of things to summarize is, is number one, I hope people are able to connect with peers, colleagues, uh, other organizations in the insights industry, but also like learn how to connect insights to business value. Like uh, you mentioned that SurveyMonkey report earlier, where I think that research departments are under more pressure to make sure they're connecting 
you know, insights to value. And I think the organizations that are speaking with us have done like a really exceptional job of helping insights leaders be at the table and to empower decision makers to make, you know, kind of customer informed decisions. And so what I would hope people would get out of that is uh, they come up with like frameworks and everything for understanding how to connect insights to actual business value in addition to connecting with the, uh, the broader community. Last question. What is your personal motto? I'm not sure I can say this one because it has like, like some, some pr- profanity in it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is not a family-friendly show, so it's fine. You can have some profanity. Okay, okay. So hopefully my mother-in-law is not listening. But uh, mine is uh, don't fuck with my mammoths. And uh, <laughs> some quick uh, backstory on that. So I, I think back to you know tens of thousands of years ago, explain that. So essentially, we sit in front of computers today. We sit on Zoom. We do a lot of typing. We have meetings. We coordinate all those types of things. And that's a very unnatural experience relative to the rest of human history. And so we think back to 10,000 years ago, maybe more, we were hunting mammoths to survive, right? So we'd be out hunting and it's a very different experience. It's a very visceral experience. And sometimes like our digital experience and everything kind of hides or obfuscates the fact that what we're doing is what enables ourselves and our families and our loved ones to eat and to be successful and to thrive. And so essentially, I think of our business and our clients and everybody that I work with as like mammoths. These are the people that we need to work so hard to to support and to please. And so things that mess with that overall process, it's essentially effing with a mammoth. And so I don't want people to eff with my mammoths. And it kind of connects human history to what we're doing today which is uh, you know, sitting on, on Zoom and writing on a computer. My guest today has been Rick Kelly, Chief Product Officer at FuelCycle. Thank you, Rick, for joining me on the Happy Market Research Podcast today. Thank you. Everyone else, don't fuck with my mammoths. That might be my <laughs> new tagline. I hope you have a great day. Please tag, uh, screen capture, distribute this. Great insights. Have a good rest of your day. <laughs>